Could this be a COVID game changer? The lead starts right now. A new phase of the pandemic, the FDA will soon consider a new pill to fight COVID-19, along with more booster shots and vaccines for young kids. Nuclear secrets hidden inside a peanut butter sandwich. The stunning details of how a Navy engineer and his wife allegedly attempted to sell top-secret information to a foreign agent who turned out to be the FBI. Plus, total meltdown. Thousands of flights canceled in the past few days in a mystery over exactly what is going on. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Pamela Brown in for Jake Tapper on this Monday. And we want to start with the health lead. Something brand new and good is going on right now in this pandemic. Today, the drug maker Merck asked the FDA for emergency authorization for what could be the first pill to treat the virus. Not a vaccine, not an infusion of antibodies. This would be a capsule to treat adults who get sick. Merck says this one is so promising the company stopped a study on it because the drug was working so well. And this new request comes as COVID cases keep ticking down. As CNN's Nick Watt reports, that's an encouraging sign. But as leading experts warn, it doesn't mean we're done with this pandemic. The first pill to treat COVID-19 might be getting close. Today, its makers, Merck and Ridgeback Biotherapeutics, asked the FDA for emergency use authorization. In trials, molnupiravir near halved the risk of hospitalization and death in people already suffering some symptoms. Longer term, I think this is going to be huge. And unlike monoclonal antibody treatment and remdesivir given as IV infusions, these are easy to pop pills. So it makes it much more accessible, much more reliable and really gives us hope. Key numbers meantime, average daily COVID-19 cases and deaths in the U.S. both down from last week patients in the hospital, lowest it's been in more than two months. We have to just be careful that we don't prematurely declare victory. As more vaccine mandate deadlines near, shots in arms did just tick up. Plus, a powerful voice is making a pitch to fellow evangelicals, a somewhat hesitant group. If you've prayed to God to give you protection against COVID-19, and along come these vaccines created by science, which God has given us the ability to do, and they're incredibly safe and effective, maybe that was the answer to prayer. Pfizer vaccine boosters, of course, already a go. FDA advisors will meet Thursday, Friday to talk Moderna and Johnson & Johnson booster shots. Later this month, they'll talk vaccines for the 5 to 12s. Younger kids still maybe by year's end? Remember, trick-or-treating coming soon to a street near you. It's a good time to reflect on why it's important to get vaccinated, but go out there and enjoy Halloween as well as the other holidays that will be coming up. Now, back to that potentially game-changing antiviral pill. We don't know yet when, if it will be rolling out, but it's going to be a few weeks at the very least. But what we do know is in mid-June, the Biden administration pre-ordered 1.7 million courses of that pill, taking a gamble that they were on to a winner. Pamela. All right, Nick Watt, thanks so much for that. Let's bring in Dr. Peter Hotez. He is the co-director of vaccine development at Texas Children's Hospital. Great to see you, Dr. Hotez. Let's zero in on this new COVID pill from Mark. It is supposed to prevent severe illness for people who contract the virus. How does this new pill stack up against other COVID treatments out there right now? 
So, of course, the advantage relative to monoclonal antibodies with the monoclonal antibody, you need to go to an infusion center and get get it administered intravenously. These are quite a number of pills, but it's still an oral treatment that goes on for five days. The key, though, so this is for individuals who are start to get sick, who become positive for COVID-19 is by, by PCR. And if you get it early enough in the illness, it seems to decrease the likelihood that you'll get severe illness or lose your life. And it's not it's not magic. It will reduce the severity of illness. The, the most important message that I've been trying to get out there is it's not a substitute for vaccination. Right. You know, I don't want this to become ivermectin version 2.0 although this one actually works, whereas ivermectin doesn't, because it re- could reduce the severity, but it's not nearly as effective as getting vaccinated to, pre- to prevent you from getting infected in the first place. Yeah, it's always better to prevent the infection, right, than getting it and then having to treat it. What does the pill actually do in the body? No, so so it, it belongs to a, a class of drugs called a ribonucleoside, and it seems to inhibit a critical enzyme that the that the uh, virus needs, and actually introduces mutations into the virus, actually catastrophic mutations for the virus, so it's no longer effectively replicating. And that use of the mutation word is very important, Pam, because uh, I have a feeling when it is released for emergency use, it will not be authorized for pregnancy until it's better studied uh, and makes certain that there's no untoward effect on on the fetus. So. Uh, for pregnant women, again, it's just another reminder. It's going to be absolutely critical you get vaccinated. And yet pregnant women still are such a high rate are unvaccinated. Um, I think in the UK there was a study out just recently where something like one in five COVID patients in the hospital were pregnant women. What do you make of that? How do you get the word out to, to pregnant women about yeah, how important vaccines are? Yeah, it's so important. Pregnant women do not do well with the COVID-19 virus, high rates of hospitalization, and so much loss of life. And you can imagine how tragic that would be for any family. So, you know, getting the word out that these vaccines are highly safe in pregnancy. You know, one of the pieces of disinformation coming out from anti-vaccine groups is they make the statement that it causes infertility. It's it's nonsense. Uh, the vaccines do not do that. They just copy-pasted that from a false assertion they made about the HPV vaccine for cervical cancer and other cancers. So these vaccines are safe for use in pregnancy. They'll save your life. They'll give you high levels of virus-neutralizing antibody, which you could pass on to your newborn baby, either through breastfeeding or through placental transfer and keep your baby safe for the for the first few weeks of, of your baby's life. So there's so many reasons to do this. And we know how harmful COVID can be to the pregnant woman and the baby. Uh, you, you brought up disinformation. I want to ask you about uh, what Alan West, a Republican candidate for governor of Texas, has been pushing on Twitter. Um, he, he has COVID. He is not vaccinated. He's in the hospital. And he told his 800,000 followers on Twitter, quote, Instead of jabbing Americans and not illegal immigrants with a dangerous shot, which injects them with these spike proteins, guess what? I now have natural immunity and double the antibodies, and that's science. So Alan said instead of vaccines, he'd rather see more monoclonal antibody infusion therapy. He is not helping you make the case for vaccines, especially in your home state of Texas, is he? 
No, in fact, uh, we just published a study um, in collaboration with Allison Galvani's group at Yale, looking at the state of Texas and Florida. If Texas and Florida had reached vaccination levels similar to what's in the Northeast, 74% by the end of July, uh, we could have saved 22,000 lives. So 22,000 lives were needlessly lost because we didn't achieve high vaccination coverage in part because of phony rhetoric like this, um, anti-science rhetoric, which I don't even call it in misinformation or disinformation anymore, Pam. I, I call it anti-science aggression because it's it's a killer. Anti-science is now a leading cause of death in the United States. That is um, really alarming. I, I also want to note a troubling number in Friday's jobs report. The healthcare industry alone lost more than a half million jobs since the start of the pandemic. Nurses and residential care workers made up 80% of the losses. What do you make of that? What are you hearing among the ranks at hospitals there in Texas? Yeah, I'm talking to people all the time, including family members who are physicians and healthcare providers. You know, part of it is they're exhausted. I mean, this these last two years just took a lot out of everybody, just seeing so much death and destruction, so many people losing their lives. And and now, and, and of course, we know the stories where loved ones couldn't be with them in their final hours and, and having to have that surrogate role. On top of the fact now we've had 100,000 Americans nationally uh, lose their lives over the summer from the Delta variant, despite the availability of safe and ev- effective vaccines. So I talked about the 22,000 lives in, in Texas and, and, and Florida, but 100,000 nationally um, who needlessly lost their lives. That was has been incredibly demoralizing. And the fact that when these healthcare providers get off shift and they, you know, have to do food shopping or get some dinner, they see nobody wearing masks, and and that's also uh, demoralizing. So it's that comment. So it's trivial to call it burnout. It, it's 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 the demoralization, and and hopefully we can get some of them to come back into the workforce. Just to be clear, you believe it's more that than the vaccine mandates, and they're leaving because they don't want to get the vaccine just very quickly. Yeah, I think that's a small minority of healthcare providers uh, leaving on that basis. All right, Dr. Peter Hotez, thank you so much. Thank you. Well, their bosses blankly looking at the TV as officers fought for their lives. The new allegations in a scathing letter from a Capitol Police whistleblower. Plus, inside the Taliban's so-called justice, CNN's Clarissa Ward looked into what the Taliban say and what's really happening there. That's ahead. And our politics lead, expect a showdown over subpoenas and the investigation into the January 6th insurrection. Over the weekend, CNN learned former Trump aide Dan Scavino was served at Mar-a-Lago. And investigators are threatening to pursue criminal charges against Steve Bannon if he doesn't comply. Now, as CNN's Paula Reed reports, there's a new scathing letter from a Capitol Police whistleblower accusing leadership of inaction and failing to share vital intelligence with other top officers before, during, and after the deadly riot. Growing signs of democracy in peril. Top Republicans doubling down on the big lie as they turn to the 2022 midterms. On Sunday, the number two House Republican, Steve Scalise, refused to acknowledge President Biden was legitimately elected. If you look at a number of states, they didn't follow their state-passed laws. 
Republican Senator Chuck Grassley appeared alongside Trump at a rally in Iowa Saturday. So if I didn't accept the endorsement of a person that's got 91% of the Republican voters in Iowa, I wouldn't be too smart. I'm smart enough to accept that endorsement. In February, Grassley rejected the big lie in a statement saying the reality is he lost. He brought over 60 lawsuits and lost all but one of them. But this weekend, Grassley looked on as the former president continued to lie about his loss. First of all, he didn't get elected. Okay, forget that. Representative Liz Cheney shot back at her fellow Republicans, tweeting, perpetuating the big lie is an attack on the core of our constitutional republic. As Trump continues to undermine democracy, the House Select Committee wants answers. This is the United States Congress demanding their compliance with an investigation that goes right to the heart of American democracy and national security. Former Chief of Staff Mark Meadows and former Pentagon official Cash Patel are engaging with the committee, while Steve Bannon says he intends to defy orders. CNN learned that former Trump aide Dan Scavino was served with a subpoena on Friday after the committee had trouble finding him. It's unclear if he will cooperate. CNN has also obtained a letter from a Capitol Police whistleblower accusing the agency's two senior leaders of mishandling intelligence surrounding the insurrection. The whistleblower identifies themselves as a former high-ranking officer with 31 years at Capitol Police and says they came forward because Assistant Chiefs Yogananda Pittman and Acting Assistant Chief Sean Gallagher played a role in disciplining officers for actions on January 6th but feels they were never personally held fully accountable. The letter, sent late last month and first reported by Politico, claims that two of the top U.S. Capitol Police officers failed to act as violence unfolded and that Pittman lied to Congress earlier this year when she told Senate investigators that vital intel was shared with police leadership. The whistleblower writes this information would have changed the paradigm of that day. A spokesman denied to Politico that Pittman lied to Congress. Bannon still faces a subpoena to appear for a deposition this Thursday and is expected that the committee would wait until after that date to move forward on criminal contempt if he doesn't show. Now, Bannon is citing executive privilege as the reason he cannot comply, but he wasn't in the executive branch at the time in question, and he was also a key player in promoting the January 6th rally. So making this blanket claim of privilege, Pamela, it's legally absurd. It's basically insulting (laughs) to think that, you know, they would buy into that. All right. Thank you so much, Paula Reed. We appreciate it. Well, the big lie that fueled the insurrection still being pushed by Republicans, how a few in the GOP are now trying to push back. And our politics lead, former President Donald Trump, is once again advocating for Ashley Babbitt, the insurrectionist who was killed in January 6, on January 6, rather, while trying to storm the nation's capital. In a new video message sent to her family on what would have been her 36th birthday, Trump calls for the Department of Justice to reopen its investigation in her death. The Capitol Police officer who shot Babbitt said he did it as a last resort and has been cleared of any wrongdoing. So let's discuss all of the happenings uh, from the weekend. So much to, to, to start with, but let's go with, shall we go with Chuck Grassley, perhaps, Alice? Um, <laughs> Trump, you know, is continuing to whitewash January 6th, and he was doing so at that rally in Iowa. And 
the most senior Republican, Republican from Iowa, Chuck Grassley, there on stage, right, right there on stage with Trump, um, was clearly right behind him every step of the way. What do you make of that, given Chuck Grassley's past comments about, you know, um, the insurrection and Trump and the election not being stolen to now this? I think there are many Republicans who can say, denounce January 6th and the insurrection at the Capitol, but still do what you can to try and thread the needle to keep Donald Trump on board. Having been uh, one of the presidential candidates that has, or campaigns that has been done the full Grassley three times, traveling all 99 counties in Iowa, I'm very well aware of how popular Chuck Grassley is in Iowa, and all of us are here. The, the key here is that he will do well in Iowa. He also has very strong support amongst Republicans in Iowa. But the, but the motivating factor here is, that, is if you can, in an uh, election like this, if you can keep Donald Trump on board and keep his supporters in your camp and also grow the tent and keep the uh, independents uh, as well as the, uh, the undecided voters and the swing voters on board, that's the winning ticket. And that's what Chuck Grassley is trying to do. And I think he will do so successfully because he has... The, the institutional knowledge and the reputation in the state of Iowa. What I found so interesting about that rally in Iowa, though, is just how much the establishment Republicans in Iowa lined up behind mm-hmm. pres- or you know Donald Trump at that rally. It wasn't just the Jim Jordans and the Matt Gaetzes of the world who gathered us and stood behind him. It, it was Governor Kim Reynolds. Mm-hmm. It was Congresswoman Ashley Hinson, considered a rising star in our party, and also Senator Chuck Grassley, who has been you know from Iowa, and he has been Iowa senator since. You you know, as, as long as I've been alive. But what was really instructive as to why uh, Chuck Grassley made that appearance um, over over the weekend with Donald Trump, um, I found these recent regist- uh, polling from the Des Moines Register really fascinating. If you look at the favorability ratings for Donald Trump among Iowa Republicans, it's 91%. That was that 91% mm-hmm. figure that Chuck Grassley has been talking about. Chuck Grassley's uh, personal numbers, uh, favorability numbers among Iowa Republicans, Still very high, to be sure, but surprising to see that 10-point gap. But it's not just a win for establishment Republicans to hug him. I mean, Republicans are very much damned if they do and damned if they don't. If they do call out Trump's big lie, they obviously could potentially hurt themselves in their own re-election, find themselves in the primary, and they'd be alienating their own base. But if they don't say anything, they are potentially allowing the man in their party who has the biggest megaphone, hijack their messaging for 2022. I mean, Republicans right now, the House is theirs to lose. I mean, traditionally, they flip the House when one party controls Washington, Democrats controlling Washington. They are very much prized to take the House. But they want to be talking about Biden. They want to talk about the border. They want to talk about COVID. Mm-hmm. Biden's dropping poll numbers. If they allow Trump to continue to sort of seize the day and talk about you know, his election grievances and go on about these, these lies, the big lie... They potentially make 2022 a referendum on Trump and not Biden. And that's a disaster for them. Absolutely. But here's the problem. They don't have the wherewithal. They don't have the backbone to do what you just said, to do what my friend Alice says in terms of trying to tell the truth about the election and at the same time trying to espouse conservative policies and at the same time keeping the base. For the Republican Party, it's all or nothing. We were at an inflection point, I think, this past weekend you all talk about how the establishment is now being sucked up by Trump. There is no establishment in the Republican Party anymore. It is all fringe. 
They are so fringy that the 60s and the 70s fashions are jealous. I mean, it, it's, it's ridiculous. And, you know, you saw it in the op-ed that Christine Whitman wrote along with Miles Taylor, right? right. Yeah, Miles Taylor. She talks about putting together a coalition with Democrats because there is nowhere to go for establishment Republicans. Yeah, we actually have an excerpt from that, um, from that op-ed saying rational Republicans are losing the GOP civil war. And the only near-term way to battle pro-Trump extremists is for all of us to team up on key races and overarching political goals with our longtime political opponents, the Democratic Party. Alice? Rational Republicans are the key to winning uh, the, this, quote, civil war within the Republican Party. And with all due respect to both of them, they are strong Republicans. But Republicans are not going to win in uh, primaries and certainly the general by voting for Democrats, because you can sit there and, and hate Donald Trump all you want, but it is the policies that bring this Republican Party together, and it's the policies of the Republican Party that will that's where I did. And, and that's, that's when people hate Donald Trump so much, they let that get in the way of good policy. And, and Republicans moving forward, we need Donald Trump's face, but we also need the swing voters and the, the undecided voters. I, yes. That is the only way all together, not one group, yeah. not two, but all three. And, and, and voting for Democrats is not the winning formula. And this is why you're a brilliant Republican strategist, but why <laughs> the, the Republican Party does not look like the Republican Party that you worked in, Alice. And, and that's the problem, because Donald Trump is not leading the Republican Party on its policies. He is leading it on the big lie. He is leading it on focusing on anti-democratic um, issues, on something that is very, very dangerous to democracy. And when, when you have former establishment, now fringe Republicans like Chuck Grassley cuddling up to him and making his bed in the big lie, in the conspiracy theories, in anti-democratic and dangerous thought processes, that is when you not just you don't just have a danger moment for the Republican Party. You have a danger moment for the country. And that's why I think it's so incredibly important for anyone in the Republican Party who has a backbone left, like Christine Todd Whitman, like the others who are with Liz Cheney and Adam Kritzinger, for them to continue to speak up. And you're right. It might be a losing strategy for them. But you know what? The importance of holding up truth and democracy and the Constitution and trying to focus on saving our democratic institutions and, frankly, our electoral processes for the country should be more important than winning an election. Yeah, but, but the key is it's not the Republican Party. The, the only message we have and the only issue we're talking about is not just January 6th. We're not focused on the past. We're focused on the future, like Rachel said. Republicans Trump are focused is. on the policy. He's the de facto yeah, leader right. of, of the party. And there's plenty of material frankly, for the Republicans, as you pointed out, Rachel, to, to talk about in, in terms of the Democrats. I mean, um, we had this op-ed by Charles Blow, a New York Times columnist, where he said Democrats have been unable to deliver much to make their voters happy, and their major agenda items have been stalled in Congress for so long that many of those voters are growing impatient and disillusioned. Yeah, I mean, Democrats have had a tough couple of weeks, too. I mean, they're they're fighting right now. They can't get anything passed through Congress. Um, Biden's poll numbers continuing to drop. And COVID is still a big issue. These are things that, you know, a lot of Republicans want to be talking about. And I think the, the problem with that, that op-ed, uh, the op-ed in terms that, you know, former Trump officials, um, anonymous, as he calls himself, uh, saying just turn to Democrats and elect Democrats, is it only, it only in many ways empowers Trump more. 
you know, you do have Republicans. You can't paint the whole party mm-hmm. as people who are spouting the big lie. I right. mean, talk to Mitch McConnell. He has, you know, been very careful about trying to thread a needle here. And I mean, a lot of critics would say he's not doing. He's, he's not, not doing enough, the needle. Not saying doing Trump was a victim of but, the but in coup. saying, but in saying, like that, you know, all republic. If you're a Republican that doesn't support the big lie, you should vote Democrat. I mean, I think Liz Cheney, Adam Kinzinger. I think a lot of Republicans would disagree. And and by doing that, you sort of end up washing that away. <laughs> just very quickly. Right, I mean, right. And also just going back to that Charles Blow piece, I mean, yeah. it is a difficult time for Democrats right now. My colleague, Cleve Woodson, talked to a lot of uh, activists and voters in Georgia. They are unhappy with the lack of action in Washington mm-hmm. on top Democratic priorities such as police reform, voting rights. This is why that $3.5 trillion reconciliation package is so important mm-hmm. for Biden and the Democratic Party. All right. Thank you all so much. <laughs> thank you. Thanks, ma'am. Well, the Taliban claim they have changed. What is the reality on the ground, though? Our report from Afghanistan up next. In our world lead, quote, candid and professional. That's how the State Department is describing their first meeting with the Taliban since that chaotic U.S. exit from Afghanistan. One U.S. official says this weekend's meetings in Doha were not about legitimizing the Taliban government. As the Taliban insists, they're taking a less oppressive, oppressive rather, gentler approach. CNN's Clarissa Ward went to Afghanistan to find a very different picture. Vulnerable Afghans tortured and shamed with medieval techniques. This is the image the Taliban want to project. Friendly and pious, bringing peace and security. On the streets of Ghazni City, Taliban official Maulavi Mansour Afghan goes from shop to shop, talking to the owners. He asks how the security situation is with the Taliban in charge. The situation is good, praise be to God, the man says. It may well be a performance for our cameras, but it is telling. The Taliban wants to show they have changed. When you're talking to the men and some of them don't have long beards, are you saying anything to them about their beards or does it matter right now? We tell the people that this is the Prophet Muhammad's sunnah and make them aware, he says, but we don't want to force the people to do this. In another part of the market, the newly resurrected, much-feared religious police are also keen to show they are taking a lighter touch. They gather the shopkeepers to introduce themselves and warn them about the importance of following the Sharia. Make sure your women cover themselves, one Talib tells the crowd. They should not travel without a close male relative. A man stands nearby, casually smoking a cigarette. A punishable offense under the previous Taliban regime, but no one says a thing. Back at their headquarters at the Ministry for the Propagation of Virtue and Prevention of Vice, the men are still settling in. Up until recently, this was the Ministry for Women. The man now in charge seems leery of my presence and refuses to meet my eye. He says their mission is to help Afghans embrace Islamic rule. And what do you do if they're not following your interpretation of Sharia law? We act with accordance to Sharia law. 
Firstly, we inform people about good deeds. We preach to them and deliver the message to them in a nice way. The second time, we repeat it to them, again. And the third time, we speak to them slightly harshly. If his words sound like talking points, that's because they are. As we leave, he hands us a newly issued Taliban booklet outlining the group's gentler approach. So he says that this book contains the rules for how they should carry out their work. But old habits die hard, and back in Kabul, it's clear not everyone is following the new guidelines. It's badly bruised. In a secure location, Wahid shows us the ugly marks left behind after he says he was whipped by Taliban fighters. We've changed his name for his protection. He tells us three fighters stopped him at a busy traffic circle for wearing Western-style clothing. They took him into a guard hut and demanded to see his cell phone. I had photos in my phone related to gays. Also, the clothes I was wearing were a gay style. They took me and covered my mouth. Two of them held each of my hands, and the third hit me, first with a whip and then with a stick. What reason did they give for doing this to you? When they were beating me, they kept saying that I was a gay and I should be killed. They had very scary faces. They were enjoying beating me. That lurid brutality was on full display weeks earlier in the western city of Herat, when the bloodied bodies of four men were hung in public for all to see. The Taliban said they were kidnappers, killed during a raid. On one man's chest, a grim warning, abductors will be punished like this. Remarkably, many in the crowd seemed to approve of the Taliban's medieval display. People are really happy about this decision, this man said, because people believe that by doing this, kidnapping can be removed from this province. In another grotesque display, two alleged criminals, their faces painted, were humiliated before a jeering crowd. Punishment the Taliban favors for petty thieves. After the corruption of the former government, the group has seized on a frenzied desire for swift justice. But they are savvy enough to know how it looks to the rest of the world. Back in Ghazni, our attempts to see the justice system in action are repeatedly stonewalled. We're told that the Sharia High Court is closed despite the people waiting outside. We're trying to show that you have a judicial As we try to persuade the Taliban to let us in, we see two men head into the court. Our Taliban minder relents and lets us follow them. But in the courtroom, the judge makes it clear we are not welcome. Tell them to stop, he says. We are quickly ushered out. We've been trying all day to get into the Sharia court. They're not letting us, but they also won't give us a reason. Alhamdulillah. It may be that what happens behind closed doors here doesn't fit the Taliban's new, carefully cultivated image, and that the movement, born in conflict, is still brutal at its core. Larissa, such a powerful and important report. And, and we didn't see many women in your piece. What is life like for women and girls in Afghanistan right now? 
Well, I think it depends where you are. Uh, for women in urban areas who've seen huge improvements to their quality of life over the last 20 years, uh, life is very difficult at the moment. Girls are not allowed to go to school after sixth grade. Uh, women are being told to stay at home, not to go to the office. Women are being told in some parts of the country to cover themselves up, to wear a burqa. Uh, we saw signs everywhere outside beauty salons that have images of women's faces that had been defaced, covered in spray paint and graffiti. And we heard today from the U.N. Secretary General again saying that, you know, this is a real problem, that the Taliban are not living up to some of the promises that they made with regards to women and girls. And that's a big part of why the U.S. and others are not going ahead and unfreezing that aid that the Taliban so desperately wants to try to prevent an economic collapse, Pamela. All right, CNN's Clarissa Ward in Islamabad. Thank you, Clarissa. Coming up on this Monday, dead drops and alias secrets hidden in a sandwich? How a Navy engineer and his wife allegedly tried to sell nuclear secrets. Up next. International lead a sticky situation for one Maryland couple. The FBI says they were caught trying to sell classified nuclear secrets by smuggling memory cards into a peanut butter sandwich and a pack of gum. CNN's Jessica Schneider has all the details of how the FBI uncovered the plot. Some of the country's most closely guarded nuclear submarine secrets inside a peanut butter sandwich. Over the weekend, the FBI and U.S. Navy arresting Navy nuclear engineer Jonathan Toby and his wife Diana for attempting to sell classified information to a foreign government, alleging the couple used methods out of a spy novel to pass the information to an undercover FBI agent. After messaging with agents for months, the couple allegedly left a memory card at a dead drop location in West Virginia in June, where the FBI found it wrapped in plastic and placed between two slices of bread on a half of a peanut butter sandwich. Allegedly inside, details of militarily sensitive design elements, operating parameters, and performance characteristics of Virginia-class submarine reactors. Virginia-class submarines are some of the most advanced stealth submarines in the world, capable of staying underwater for months at a time. They can engage targets at sea and on land, as well as gather intelligence and deploy Navy SEALs. The Tobies allegedly conducted two more dead drops, the final one in August, with a memory card in a chewing gum package that allegedly contained schematic designs for the Virginia-class submarine. The FBI says that Jonathan Toby has been a Navy employee since 2012. He worked at a lab in Pennsylvania on nuclear propulsion, where he maintained a top-secret security clearance. His wife, Diana, is a teacher in Annapolis, Maryland, who allegedly acted as a lookout for her husband during the dead drops. In one of his messages, Jonathan Toby allegedly wrote, he was extremely careful to gather the files I possess slowly and naturally in the routine of my job. We received training on warning signs to spot insider threats. It was a mix of uh, some very sophisticated methods used by Mr. Tobey and his wife and some really sloppy ones. The couple allegedly wrote that they were seeking a total of $5 million in cryptocurrency. The FBI says they paid the Tobies $100,000 over the course of the investigation. 
But the biggest mystery remains. Who did this nuclear engineer think he was selling these government secrets to? The FBI is only referring to it as country, uh, country one in the court records. And that country did alert the FBI, which then began that year-long undercover investigation. And Pamela, Toby and his wife, they will appear in court tomorrow. The government is actually seeking that they be detained pending trial. They say that they're a flight risk, also worrying that they could destroy evidence here. Pam? That's a good thing that that government alerted the FBI to this. Wow, what a story. Jessica Schneider, thanks so much for that. Well, thousands of flights canceled, angry, stranded passengers, and really still no clear answer as to why so many Southwest flights aren't taking off. And our money lead, a disastrous holiday weekend for Southwest Airlines. For the fourth straight day, the world's largest low-cost carrier canceled hundreds of flights, adding to a total of more than 2,000 since Friday. Many travelers, even flight crews, were forced to camp out in airports after being left without a hotel room or a way home. One passenger telling CNN they had to drive 900 miles after being stranded by the airline. CNN's Nick Valencia joins us from the airport in Atlanta. So, Nick, what is Southwest saying about the cause of all these cancellations? Pamela, this is just a mess, and Southwest Airlines says they have staffing shortages, which has contributed in a big way to this mess. It's an issue that they've known about for months, but just have not been able to resolve. In fact, their COO released a video statement to employees saying they're making no guarantees that they're going to be able to stop these cascading cancellations, saying they simply aren't where they want to be when it comes to staffing. And when you compare the numbers of where they're at right now, they have 7,000 fewer employees when compared to pre-pandemic. Union representatives for flight attendants say about 1,000 of those 7,000 employees took early retirement buyouts in the early days of the pandemic. So you had passengers showing up here over the weekend and even still today expecting to get on their flight, only finding out at the ticket counter that they weren't able to do it. We did find out, though, there was a couple who had their flight rebooked. They said this seems to be exclusively a Southwest problem. Southwest is their primary airline. It's been extremely frustrating. I mean, it's disrupted my work schedule anyway, mm-hmm. uh, for sure, and, and plans that we had. We mentioned that this is a staffing shortage over the weekend. That was exposed by Florida problems, weather and air traffic control problems. A significant amount of their flight crew is based in Florida. Southwest has a huge problem at their hands that they haven't quite yet been able to wrap their hands around yet. Pamela? Thanks, Nick, and thank you for joining us for the special edition of The Lead. Our coverage continues now. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.